Hello, my name is Curtis Merriweather Jr. You are listening to the Business Theologist Podcast. This podcast is for new and seasoned business professionals looking to uncover knowledge gems. This podcast is unlike other business podcasts because we endeavor to create a synergistic relationship between business, management, scholarship, and theology. In addition to being an executive leader, I am also a doctoral candidate. The insights shared on this podcast will give you an edge over the competition. Whether you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or executive leader, or someone looking to change careers, I invite you to travel along this learning journey with me. Buckle up and let's get ready for the ride. Let's go. Okay, thank you guys today. We have a special treat for you today. We are being joined today by Dr. Tony Bindle. He's a well-known keynote speaker at worldwide events and conferences worldwide. He's an international expert, speaker, consultant, and trainer with extensive experience in the fields of quality management, organizational excellence, lean operations, Six Sigma, integrated management systems, emergency management, and developing anti-fragile organizations. Man, he's been busy. He's formerly the Rolls-Royce funded professor for quality and reliability management, and previously, the East Midlands Electricity Professor of Quality. Tony has both an outstanding academic career and an extensive professional consultancy role at the highest level within both manufacturing and service organizations within the public sector. He is a leading figure in the UK with, within the international quality, productivity, improvement, and excellence coupled with public sector transformation movements. He's published extensively and is the principal author of the best-selling Financial Times book on benchmarking, which is available in six languages and two editions. Welcome, Dr. Tony, to the show. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you. So thank you so much, Tony, for taking time out of your busy question. So, I mean, I read this um, amazing, and I truncated it, this amazing biography of you. But we just want to know, how did you become what we know today as, as Tony, Dr. Tony Bindle? So my career has mainly been an academic career. Um, I spent um, a, a long time uh, as a university uh, professor. Um, I headed a center in uh, Leicester University in the UK, my last uh, full-time academic role which was a center of quality excellence uh, in a chair that was funded by Rolls-Royce. Um, so I was the Rolls-Royce professor of quality and reliability, quite a, quite a mouthful, in fact, in, in that sense. Um, and so I've always been fascinated by efficiency, by productivity, about doing things right, and about the oversights that we have. And the anti-fragile interest that I have really developed out of that fascination. Um, we, we see too many organizations that uh, now fail. And obviously the COVID-19 has added to what was already quite a depressing scene 
um, organizations that knew that or should have known that travel was ahead but were not prepared, were not adequately prepared. So my interest has been in how we actually get organizations to be prepared, be constantly prepared and be able to cope and be agile and responsive and get stronger um, through time, no matter what threats they're facing. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I was introduced to your work in a class that I took in the spring, so actually a couple of months ago. I took a complex system class and your, 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 your introduction to your book was the, was the required reading. And the things that I read in the book were truly, truly trans. I had never seen anything. I, I did read some of the works, uh, uh, and I won't, I won't steal your thunder, but I did read some of the works of someone else who wrote about um, Dr. Tollip, who wrote about anti-fragility. But seeing your stuff was amazing. So the question that I want to ask you is, what is fragility, first of all? Before we get into anti-fragility, what is fragility? Fragility is easy. Fragility are, is things, items, physical items, organizations, systems, even people that can't withstand stress. Mm. So being fragile is being susceptible to stress. And we tend to think about robust as its opposite, but robust is only being strong and being, be able to withstand stress up to a certain limit. But the problem with robust is we're always waiting for something stronger than it to come along and demolish it. And it's a bit like in London here. Here in London, we have the Thames Barrier. The Thames Barrier protects London against flooding. Okay. But it's only so high and it's only so strong. And it's possible sooner or later we get a stronger wave that breaches it. But wouldn't it be nice if the Thames Barrier got stronger and stronger? Every time a wave hit it, it got higher and it got stronger. Wow. And the interesting thing, of course, is to some extent, that's what we do. When I exercise, I get stronger within limits. The more I exercise, the stronger I get. Now, that property of natural systems, that property of people, organisms, um, ecosystems, wouldn't it be nice if we had that property in relation to our systems and our organizations as well? And it's interesting that the infrastructure we've put into our organizations is very much a copy of the sort of attitude to fragility and robustness that we have about our engineering. Um, we've built systems a bit like we build cars. With a car, you make it strong. You make it to withstand stress. Car generally doesn't get stronger from being stressed. But a human organization has got hard elements, its policies, its structures. It's also got soft elements, us, where its biggest strength and its biggest weakness. We cause the problems many, many times, but we also get around the problems. So organizations are capable of getting stronger from being stressed if we properly exploit, if we properly utilize our people. And if we have systems to support that. Wow. So if I'm hearing you correctly, a fragile organization doesn't do well in the presence of chaos, but an anti-fragile system actually gets better. 
Yeah, a fragile organisation only doesn't do well in chaos, doesn't do well in turbulence. It may not be as bad as chaos, it may be constant change. But there are many organisations that kind of forget what it's all about. They kind of lose the plot after a while. Wow. I think it's still true to say that the Fortune 500 companies are now younger than they've ever been before. Very difficult to keep your place at the top mm. in the sort of turbulent environment we're now facing. That's an interesting observation that the new Fortune 500 companies are fairly younger organizations. Is that because the older organizations are fragile and they're not evolving? I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, fragility comes from lots of places. So fragility comes from competition. Fragility comes from not keeping up with the changes in the marketplace, with substitution, with new entrant, and the rest of it. Fragility comes from organizational structures which are perhaps old, outdated, and from product ranges which are no longer appropriate. Fragility comes from business models which are no longer appropriate for the current marketplaces. Fragility comes from every layer in the infrastructure of the organization. If you look at an organization, say, from the point of view of the Lloyd's layer model, every layer from the easiest to change to the hardest to change and have embedded in it fragilities or anti-fragilities or robustnesses. So fragility is at all levels and in all places. And it includes obviously fragilities of governance. So I think the issue and the problem is that fragile organizations typically are the ones that don't know they're fragile. Wow. They're the ones that lack awareness. They're the ones that are complacent. And the organizations that seem to get into that sort of trouble, and we have so many of them now, um, are, is because actually they've lost that sense of their purpose, their environment, their knowledge of themselves and what's going on around them, and their ability to make decisions, react, and cope, their agility. All of the issues associated with living organism can respond to its environment very, very quickly. If our organizations are like living organisms, they need to be much more aware. They need to see what's going on around them. They need to understand the threats. Well, you know, when you were talking, I, <clears throat> I heard you talk about the things that make organizations fragile. When you're going through your list, I heard things that were very similar to Porter's Five Forces. And the things that we learn in traditional business schools about strategy and competition sounds like though that thought process could actually induce fragility into our organizations if it's not handled properly. Is that a stretch or am I tracking? Yeah, this, this is a tricky one. Anti-fragility and fragility exists at all levels, in all places, in all the organizations. It's in the processes. It's in the strategy, it's in the governance, it's in the people and the culture and the management of the people, it's in the leadership potentially. So everything we do in the organization, it depends very much on how we do it and if we remember why we do it and if we are paying attention to the changes that are going on around us. When an organization is founded, if it managed to survive, it probably was a pretty anti-fragile organization. It was finding its place in the world. 
it was withstanding the turbulence of origin and growth and getting its place. But then it's very easy to drop into being a cash cow, to simply be producing returns, to lose the energy, the awareness of the founders. And at that point, when the organization stops thinking and goes on to autopilot, it's at its most fragile. Wow. And, and obviously, in the turbulent environment we now have, um, the turbulence of the markets, the turbulence of technology change, and of course, more recently, obviously, the pandemic, in, the, in those sorts of turbulent conditions, we stress the business model which was there, which means it may no longer be appropriate and we may not be able to survive. So the, the stress is happening more frequently and in different ways than it happened in the past. But this was always there, of course. We always had organizational failures. And in many cases, those organizational failures took place in the second generation of a family business or the third generation. The number of family businesses that survived to the third generation and beyond is very limited because the original owner perhaps had a very anti-fragile attitude and approach and understanding, but it's not necessarily in the next generation of ownership. So fragility has always been there. It's good in one sense. It means that we end up with uh, perhaps efficient, worthwhile organizations, but it's bad in another sense because it means we waste the resources associated with those organizations. The more we can do something about protecting ourselves against fragility, protecting our organizations against fragility, the more we can, like preventative medicine, save money, save cost, and save waste. That includes waste of lives and aspirations. So the more we can make our organizations uh, ready for the outside world, the better. Well, I mean, dude, you, you said a lot. With that, I mean, I heard so many gems there about, you know, the family businesses that moving into second and third generations. It, it was a lot. I hope our listeners are paying a lot of attention. There was a lot there. I'm going to personally have to go back and reread this transcript when we're done. But I want to keep the conversation moving because you, you hit some very valid points. So what are the common pitfalls that keep organizations from becoming anti-fragile? I mean, I think number, you alluded to a lot already. Yeah, number one has to be they forget that they're fragile. They think they're fragile, or rather, they think they're robust, they think they're strong, they don't think they are not a risk. They've been being successful for too long, so they kind of forget that things can go wrong. And so it's all left a bit too late. So that has to be one of the issues. But then there's all the obvious stuff, not being aware of their environment, particularly the external environment and the changes going on. You know, with COVID, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? A cover of Time magazine in 2017 said we were not ready for the next pandemic. It actually made the cover of Time, I think in May 2017. Every organization in the world knew there was a risk of a pandemic. In January, we saw it unfolding. By February, it was going international. By March, it was going global and it was coming near to us. But when did we start reacting to that? When did we start as organizations taking action? 
We've done all our risk analysis, but was it the right sort of risk analysis? We worried about business continuity, but in our risk analysis, we tended to treat a pandemic as if it was a point event, as if it was flooding nearby. But a pandemic is something you can see coming. It's not a black swan. Mm. And this one particularly was probably a white swan. And it was a white swan because we knew there would be a next pandemic. We were warned. It was obvious. And in fact, some people, of course, call it a grey rhino. You've got a big rhino charging towards you. It's enormous. It's going to do a lot of damage. It's definitely coming but we ignore it. Maybe you know, so that's what happened. Our risk management was completely wrong. Mm. We waited until we had to do something, until we were told, until government started to get involved, until the industry itself began to notice and we came to a consensus. We weren't preparing. So the problem, I think, with organisations being fragile is that we work in the old way still. We don't have the awareness. We don't use the information. We're not adequately joined up. And if you think of the analog to a living organism, if our organizations are like living organisms, we're not, we haven't got the sense of the outside. We don't feel at risk. We haven't got the nervous system that makes sure that one part of the organization is coordinated with another part of the organization. We're not worrying about our supply chain, our food supply or whatever until it goes wrong we have very extended ones we, we've gone too far on efficiency um the more efficient we are by and large the more fragile we are aren't we why is that when i go and see my doctor if my doctor has got quarter an hour slots for patients because he's efficient and he's going to use every single one of them if any one patient takes more than a quarter an hour his whole appointment system falls over when we land aircraft at Heathrow Airport, because it's so busy, the great danger is we get a delay and then the whole schedule falls over. The more efficient we are, by and large, the more fragile we are. So we should move back a bit from maximum efficiency. People talk about New York traffic much the same. It gets gridlocked because we're just on that edge. The more efficient, the more we push through, generally there's no room, there's no buffer. And we need buffer because of variation which is taking place, particularly in a turbulent environment. So highly efficient organizations can be too efficient. They can be too rigid in how they achieve efficiency. They hardwire their systems, but also because they're highly efficient, they've got no space. That it creates fragility, unfortunately. So an anti-fragile organization will be paying attention to that. But also they'll be doing other things. They'll be, um, they'll be valuing all forms of diversity. They won't have identical business structures throughout the organization because it's one of the principles we do learn from natural systems that species survive because in every generation we throw up diversity. Darwinian evolution tells us that that diversity then means that some survive in the different circumstances that we're exposed to. The more we centralize, the more we replicate the same business model in every part of the organization, potentially 
the more fragile we make ourselves. Fragility is really interesting. Um, technology, you know, every new push in technology, when it first appears, it's anti-fragile, but over time it becomes fragile. You know, what happened to the car, the, the buggy manufacturers when the car industry developed was most of them just couldn't adapt to the change. They had an opportunity, but they were hooked into a market which no longer existed. So all these aspects are part of that problem that fragile organizations don't recognize that they are fragile, don't recognize adequately that the world is changing around them. And, and really, I think anti-fragility at the operational level is a wake-up call. What we need to be thinking about is how ready we are for the future. And generally, organizations have not been ready enough for the future, as COVID has proven, to put it mildly. So with that thought, how do we, and I, I think you, you kind of alluded to this already, um, but how do we as practitioners develop strategy that, that invites, that fosters anti-fragility? Well, the strategy level, I mean, the thing, the thing about anti-fragility to me, and when I wrote the book, I was trying to connect things I'd done all my professional career about improvement and organizational excellence and efficiency and effectiveness and quality management and stuff. I tried to connect them in to the anti-fragile model and I realized that a lot of them are good things in isolation, but what we need to do is get a coherent approach to it. Now with strategy, obviously the developments that have taken place in strategy, the whole change in the approach to strategy, this emphasis now on emergent strategy, is, is obviously, that's anti-fragile, that's good. The more we're using emergent strategy, the more agile, the more flexible we are. The more we have the potential to learn and use feedback loops and to affect our strategy itself, which is great. Um, but where does strategy stop is quite interesting. And where does future foresight, future shaping start? Because that's interesting as well, isn't it? You see, a anti-fragile organization will not just be working out how to cope with the present and the immediate future, how to achieve its vision, but will be thinking ahead of that to how to shape the world around it. Just like a potter shapes a will, on a, a, a sh shapes a pot on a will. Right. How do we shape? Organizations have got the ability to shape their future. Organizations can affect the market. Organizations can affect their communities. Organizations have got a big part to play in the future and have got the chance to do it. But kind of we stop strategy before that. We see strategy on a relatively short cycle. If we're thinking seriously of five years or 10 years ahead, in most markets, we're not really thinking too much further in, in any real sense. And yes, strategy needs to be very agile and very reflective. It should be emergent. But actually, strategy is part of the equation. It's not the whole picture. Um, above strategy comes governance. Now, how about this? Every time an organization fails, it's a failure of the board, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, what failure can you think of an organization which isn't a failure of the board? So 
are our boards in our organizations really thinking and dealing with that responsibility which is their responsibility to do which is to protect the future of that organization and are they as a board making sure the organization that they're aware and governing the organization of the environment externally and internally and are looking through all the fragility points within the organization is that board perhaps relying on information coming through the executive of the organization more than likely very likely and in most cases and let's face it we we see a good good vice president perhaps good president as somebody who controls their board now is that good because from an anti-fragile point of view the independence of the board is probably absolutely crucial but the governance issue as well we've had fragile governance we saw it in the last crisis we saw it in the financial crisis in the banks the governance was not as good as it could have been and we've seen it in lots of organizations so this fragility anti-fragility issue I think it's a unifier in how we look at organizations. I've always had problems in the business schools of saying what brings together all these disciplines we use, whether it's strategy or it's human resources or it's operations or it's marketing, what's the unifier? And I think the unifier is that the organization exists in order to exist. The organization is there to have a future. Now, if that's the case, it's not just about making money, it's about the future. And we've seen that in the COVID crisis. We've seen organizations forget about making money for a bit, care for their people and their customers, and do some really remarkable things. We've seen great leadership in some organizations through the crisis. So part of that leadership, anti-fragile leadership, part of that leadership is also about that vision of that future it's about the responsibility of the leaders and the responsibility of the board to be aware of the environment and what's going on around it and to think about the future of the organization. And so I think anti-fragility, if you like, is a unified model for the organization. A rather interesting one. It says that in all those features, whether we're talking about people or marketing, or we're talking about operations, what we need to do is make sure that we build in the ability to learn, the ability to act, the ability to make decisions, the ability to be aware, and that we make sure that those features get stronger and stronger over time. You know, we talked about the human resources piece. How do we equip um, our workforces to be anti-fragile? I mean, I think about companies like the Ritz-Carlton, and it has excellent customer service. And as I hear your explanation regarding anti-fragility, I think about organizations like that who lead with customer service and performance metrics being kind of the tip of the spear. So how, uh, how would you suggest that we um, create an, an anti-fragile workforce? I'm going to give an answer, but it's probably the wrong answer. Okay. Because to me, everything about anti-fragility is actually about leadership. I, I, I did another um, discussion some recently, and I was asked a similar question. The question I was asked there is, what's the one thing, if I went in to see the head of an organization tomorrow, and I, he said to me, what do I do on Monday morning? And that's a really challenging question for me. So I said, well, 
I think what you've got to do is you've got to question every single assumption that you've built the business on. And then when you've done that, your first tab, you've got to teach that to your first line reports or the C-suite. And then together as a team, you need to start doing that about the business and you need to teach that downwards in the business. We need to increase awareness. We need to increase responsiveness. We need to be building systems that help that below. But first, we've got to think, well, why is it suddenly we're caught out by COVID? We knew it was coming. Why is it we haven't been as ready as we could be for so many things, for the changes that are going on around us. And so I would say that it's all about leadership. If you really want to make Ritz Carlton say, you know, anti-fragile, it's a leadership issue. You can't do it in the middle down, but you can, but it will be for the local area. You've got to do it for the whole organization. This is a leader issue. Now, I think what's really interesting about COVID is that it's given an opportunity for a, an incredible opportunity for leadership in a way we've never seen before. We've seen leaders stand up and make statements um, about their organization and to a large extent, they'll follow through on them. Um, we've forgotten about money for a bit, which is pretty good too. Um, but anti-fragility is about leadership. You want it to happen, you've got to lead. Mm. Do you see it? Do you see it uh, a dichotomy between leadership and management from an anti-fragile construct? So you know, like I know, that we always talk about the difference between leadership and management, and it, I always think of the difference very simply in terms of well. You can manage many things. You can manage money. You can manage assets. You can manage buildings. You can manage a site. But you can only lead people or animals. Um, sometimes you can't tell the difference. You can only lead people or animals. Leadership is a very human characteristic. It's about being a role model. It's about passion. It's about getting people passionate behind you. It's about teaching. It's very much about so management, on the other hand, is about holding things stationary. Um, you know, the business school definition we normally use is planning and control. So we can manage lots of stuff. But the trouble with planning and control, control is about staying still. Mm. Staying still in a turbulent world is not a good idea. Managers in many societies are not particularly empowered. The power is very centralized in the leadership. Now, we've got an issue with management when it comes to a turbulent world, because management will hold things as they are, but anti-fragility is about making things better. So management isn't probably the right word. So I would say managers should be leaders. We should develop their leadership competence within them. But our top leaders, our big leaders, really do need to show exemplary direction and to educate their people on what it's all about. Interesting thing, you see, new organizations, new successful entrepreneurial businesses are very anti-fragile because of the energy of the leader, typically. 
And that's why they survive and succeed, get into the second, third generation, as we talked about. And then maybe they get bought and they're now run by an accountant and they're rule-based and controlled and they're delivering percentages and performance. They're not anti-fragile anymore, they're now fragile. We've introduced fragility into them by making them rule-based, by doing the planning and control with a big, big emphasis on control. Um, kind of, we lost the plot. You know, there are, there are in fact, organizations in Japan which are 600, 700 years old. Right. Right? Right. Now, it's very difficult to look around the rest of the world and find organizations with that sort of lifespan here. And, and if you look at them, it's a cultural fact. It's about what the organization's for and the place it takes and the fact that it doesn't overextend itself that it balances the upside of risk and the willingness to take risk with the, the recognition of the downside as well, of protecting the asset, of having a place in society which is not just a place in terms of profit maximization. So just as with efficiency, when you get to hyper-efficiency, you become fragile. And obviously, when you also come to hyper-profit maximization, you potentially become fragile as well. The anti-fragile organizations balance their risks, offload risk, um, but manage risk. They're aware, which reduces risk. They are responsive. They can move quickly. They've got all the intelligence to make decisions that they need to make decisions. And they're joined up so that their processes fit together. So, Anti-fragile is really like the ultimate organism that really we want to create our organizations in the image of. Wow. You you again, that was another loaded response. I mean the cultural pieces. How, how do you embed anti-fragility into the culture? I mean, because you talked about it, and I remember reading about those organizations in Japan that were 700 year old companies. Mm-hmm. That's just not that's not normal. It probably should be normal, but it's not normal. Well, normal is a good word now, isn't it? With all that new normal. Maybe it's an old normal. Maybe it's less of a normal now right. than it used to be. You know, it's culture, isn't it? Yeah. It's about what the organization's for and what you want it to be. And who's most important for that? It's got to be the leadership of the organization. So how you do it, the leaders do it. How you do it is you keep it live. It doesn't stay live on its own. You need leadership to get there and you need leadership to maintain it and it's a real priority. Now look, I'm not saying that an organization can instantly get anti-fragile. Anti-fragile is a property. Organizations, all of them, have fragile aspects, anti-fragile aspects, bits in between that may be robust. What we need to do is increase the anti-fragile aspect of the organization. And I think that's kind of the sort of the key. We need to be constantly working on it. We need to be questioning our assumptions, questioning our fragilities, you know, and doing something about those, really. And you make a great point, because you, I mean, we looked at, um, I was doing a study earlier this year, I was looking at the healthcare system 
And you're right, certain portions of the healthcare system are anti-fragile, certain portions are fragile, and some portions are robust. And I think it's that healthy understanding of recognizing that and, and then, of course, governing accordingly. Now, I have another follow-on question. Is there a particular organizational structure, whether we're talking classical, uh, weak matrix versus strong matrix, projectized, which organizational construct do you think lends itself? Because I know everyone has its own pros and cons. Which one lends itself better to being more anti-fragile in nature? Interesting idea. So again, this is something I've been asked recently, and my view on it again is a little bit. You see, I don't think. I think it's always important that we do look at structures. But my problem is not so much about the structures as about the um, the features that actually exist at any given time. What, what I'm really trying to say here, remember I said that I believe that the key leader needs to bring together all the C-suite people and get them to question their assumptions. Well, one of the assumptions they've got is that they're head of a functional unit and that's what their purpose is. I'm head of operations, I'm in charge of finance, or I'm in charge of marketing. Whatever I'm in charge of design, whatever I'm in charge of, that's why I am. Now we've already failed almost in that because they're not only that, they're also a member of the executive team, which is the decision-making team in the organization. They're two things at once, right? Now they may function very well in their vertical silo, but if those vertical silos are not really working together at the top level, they're stuck in their functional mindset. So structure is dominant. I don't care what the structure is, the structure is a problem. Right. What I need them to do is to operate as a team together and question all the assumptions, which will be local ones in their silo and collective ones across the organization, which will include communication and working together. So I think structures, remember structures are the hard skeleton of the organization, is part of the hard side, is part of basically the man-made structure, a bit like the bits, the structure of a car, you build cars. Whilst actually the really important things in organizations, the soft side, the bit which really gives us anti-fragility is the people, it's the relationships, it's the motivation, it's the culture. So the more we focus on structure as if it's a meaningful concept in itself and it's dominant, the more fragile we make ourselves as well, the more we build the barriers between the functional areas. And when you think of the organization as a pyramid with lots of vertical silos, those vertical silos add to the fragility of the organization. They mean communication problems, they mean conflicting priorities. They mean that we're not operating and the way as a joined up living organism. Wow. You know, when I was reading your book, you came across a lot of tools. A lot of them I heard of, like the ISO 9000 9, series, great stuff, you know, the dimming models. But, you know, one that you pulled out, or two that you pulled out, I found to be very interesting, was the 7S model and the Deloitte model. Well, I've just had a job um, teaching Deloitte consultants about the Deloitte model. That's one of the reasons why. But I wrote the book. I've just been doing some training for Deloitte consultants. And because of that, it was stuck in my head. And I thought it was a very good model. 
from the easy to change layers to the hard to change ones, from markets down to technology based and location. And therefore, it was quite a good way of slicing the organization. 7S is pretty good as well. My concern about all models, though, and I have got a very strong issue about models and about things you mentioned ISO, for instance, is very often the models and the use of these tools is an anti-fragile feature in the organization. So if I use ISO 9001 or 45001, or if I use um, the Baldrige model in a strong way in the organization to help my organization improve, that's good. But, and it's like risk management. If we do risk management, that's good. That's an anti-fragile feature. But I might do it in a way that is fundamentally fragile. I've got an anti-fragile feature, which I've implemented in a fragile way. So, for example, with risk management on 9001, I've got a system which is monitoring what's going on and giving me feedback that's increasing my awareness and helping me to change relatively quickly. The only problem is, the executive doesn't take it very interestingly. It's not very serious. It's, it's actually given to middle management or lower management to work with. In fact, it's a compliance driven ritual, which is only there because we really want to keep the certificate or our supply chain, our, our customers require it of suppliers. So we've implemented it in a way that's very rigid, when actually it's a feature that could really help the organization in its internal and external awareness and ability to respond. And that's, I think, the great tragedy of the situation. All of these models are part of the answer, but we kind of lose the plot. We forget why we're doing them. And I think that comes back to what I was saying about organizations. Some point in their history, they kind of forget what it's all about. They start sleeping. They go into autopilot. They lose the energy, they lose the purpose, they lose where they are, they lose what it's all about. They go into autopilot and then they become fragile from being anti-fragile. Well, they try and shore that up, so they put in robust systems, but robustness implies resilient systems. Robustness or resilience implies two things. One, it implies they're only strong up to a limit, like the Thames barrier, there's always going to be a wave bigger than it. But the other thing is it also implies rigidity. Now, a rigid system is not going to cope very well with changes in the world around it, the turbulence. It's only the people which are going to allow that. And if the rigid system stops them dealing with it, we've got problems. Wow. Wow. You know, you talked about earlier about the supply chain. And I remember you hearing talking about basically the the systems don't have slack. So has just-in-time manufacturing hurt the supply chain from a uh, fragility slash anti-fragility perspective, in your humble opinion? Well, look, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a great advocate of lean approaches. Don't get me wrong. But the problem with lean, and we always knew this, it's, was that it's fragile. We always knew it. Um, we can look at any system and we can say, well, we can take out all that inventory in the process. We don't need that. But if we haven't got that inventory, then we've got a danger of fragility. So we need to put in safeguards. Now, what I think has actually happened is that the crisis, COVID, has identified all kinds of different fragilities. And the supply chains are one of the areas. We've got very extended global supply chains in a number of areas. Food's one, 
that you can see across automotive and the rest of it, where under pressure, where we get geographical problems and discontinuity because of the crisis, we have got flare-ups in the crisis at different points in different places, we get breaks in the supply chain. And suddenly, in no time at all, we've managed to introduce in by remarkable entrepreneurship and agility, we've suddenly been able to produce PPE, personal protective equipment, right, and ventilators, etc. In almost every country around the world, in no time whatsoever, we've designed them, we've produced them, we've we've actually got them out and distributed. It's great, it's wonderful. Now, of course, we've only done that because we had the discontinuity, we had the fragility, the world changed, the rules changed. So it wouldn't have been economic in our business models as we were before. And once you start taking account of fragility and turbulence, they kind of get economic. They become essential. We see the world in a different way. Now I'm hoping COVID is really changing us because of that. I'm actually writing another book. Um, I'm writing a book on time to rethink risk management, wow. particularly about managing through a global crisis. I think risk management, as we've established it, is fundamentally flawed, unfortunately. It's done a lot of good. Things are better than they were, but we still know all the time we've seen failures of risk management. It's not new. This is just yet another failure of risk management. And inbuilt into our approach to risk management, inbuilt into the ISO standards, for instance, 31,000, ISO 31,000, is a fundamental flaw. And that flaw is, unless you can conceive a risk, it's not in your um, it's, it's not in your risk register. You don't include it. Therefore, you don't consider it. Therefore, when it happens, it's a surprise. We call it a black swan. Right. right now, we keep getting hit by black swans now. So, I think supply chains are just one of those aspects where I'm hoping we will see long-term change post COVID. But it's an awareness issue. When everything becomes nice and stable again, we're going to forget. Wow, short memories. Short. Now, we forgot after the financial crisis. We retained some of it, but not enough. We could have done more on governance. Right? We certainly could have done more on the role of the board, and the responsibility of the board. Now, what? Boards tend to be representatives of capital or experts, but I want them to be a team. I want them to be the governance team running the organisation making sure it's in the right place, taking the responsibility that I actually legally have. In reading your bio, in reading your book, I noticed one thing, and I'm, I'm a, we're gonna get ready to, to, to wrap this up because I do respect your time. You are heavily involved in EQFM training. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in America. So this was a new concept to me, which I looked at it and I loved it. We're gonna try to figure out how to implement it where I am. But can you tell folks who may not be familiar with EQFM what it is and then how to actually get some training from you? Because I'll be honest with you, I got several degrees and I didn't even hear about some of these concepts applied to organizations until I got into a PhD program. So a lot of these concepts definitely need to be taught. They're not being taught in a traditional business school context. And I have my whole theory about the quality of a business school education, which we'll save for a different day. But it's a lot of, it's a lot of um, holes in the current construct. 
So can you talk briefly about what EQFM is? And then can you tell our audience how to get in touch with you to, for training opportunities? I know you teach Lean Six Sigma, Green Belts, Black Belts, Master Black Belts, Lean Implementers. So to, can you, can you kind of usher us into how do we learn more about what it is that you do and what is this thing called EQFM? So let me, let me just start with EFQM. EFQM is the European Foundation for Quality Management. Now, let me say the EFQM excellence model is an equivalent to Baldrige, the American Baldrige um, National Quality Award model, and an equivalent to the Deming Prize model in Japan. So the history of this was after Edwards Deming lectured in Japan post-World War II, teaching the Japanese about quality methods, um, the royalties from his lecture notes were used to establish the uh, Deming Prize, which was a prize that companies worked for years to win, and was eventually won uh, by Kansai Electric, at which point Florida Power and Light, who were partnering with them, in fact, uh, decided that they uh, would like to apply for the award, asked the Japanese who allowed them to the first overseas organization. They were very serious about it. And eventually they won it, at which point the whole issue about the US having to rely on a Japanese excellence award came to the fore. And so the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award was established in the US. And relatively soon afterwards, European industry came together to create the EFQM model, which was more like the European business model, perhaps a little bit less shareholder value emphasis and more emphasis on a balanced stakeholder view at that time in comparison. Now, these are only some of the excellent models around the world. There's many of them. I've, done, I've been a licensed trainer for EFQM for several years, but I also work with other excellence models, um, Deming and, in fact, Baldridge. And I'm very involved these days in the United Arab Emirates in the 4G model, the fourth generation excellence model, which in many senses has features which go beyond EFQM, Baldridge and Deming at this moment. Well, that's a government one, it's for the government organisations, um, but it does deal with issues like um, future shaping, which most of these models are not very explicit on at the moment, or keep reviewing themselves, but they're not. But none of these models, 4G included, really have dealt very adequately, I think, with COVID, let me say. I think there's a need to rethink all of these models. I think there's a need to rethink organizational excellence. And I'm working with some of my client organizations on that as it stands at the moment. In terms of what we do, so I have two different entities, which um, are my organizations based in the UK. One is called Services Limited, which is a organizational excellence, quality management, lean and six sigma, um, training and um, consulting organization. And we work globally, um, do a lot of work in the Gulf, a lot of work in the UK, other work elsewhere, Europe, etc., cetera, um, on uh, organizational improvement, transformation, those sorts of areas. And then I have uh, another organization called the Anti-Fragility Academy, which was specifically designed to try and take this holistic view and look at organizations in terms of making them really future-proof wow. uh, and focusing on shaping the future. So both of those organizations work in this space. Uh, both of them do training. Both of these organizations do consulting and assessment. 
And I think one of the key things with um, anti-fragility is the starting point is probably, well, one starting point is to get the leader to start questioning everything, but the other starting point is to do a fragility survey to study the organization, to review the fragilities in the organization. Why and where are they? Why are they there? Where are they? And then to start thinking about how we start closing some of those gaps in a structured way over a period of time. So that's my passion. Um, I want to make organizations less fragile. I think um, if we could, the impact on our society is massive. We waste too many resources. It's like not having health care, isn't it? See, without health care, nobody would actually, so many would not achieve their potential. Um, we would be wasting so much resource. Uh, and that's what we need. We need health care for organizations. Wow. Wow. That's a great, that's a great summary in terms of what it is that you guys, guys do. And just one closing thought. When you say future shaping, what do you mean by that specifically? Uh, as I said, I think of like a potter shapes a pot on a wheel. Um, the pot's there, the clay's there, but the imprint, the vision of it, the form of it, is something which is created by the potter. Mm. Or you could argue comes out of the pot. It's inherent, it's there, it's waiting to develop. And I think with organisations, the organizations which are approaching anti-fragility have really got the ability to shape their future. It's not just that they're going to have strategies to take markets or become dominant or open up new markets or expand globally or whatever else, but they're going to influence their environment. Now, one of the interesting things when you look at a natural system, to some extent, we influence our environments. So I, I, as a human, influence the environment around me. Um, I, my, my garden, where I live, I change it. It gets affected by me. Now, organizations are kind of like that. They live within societies. They live within economies. They can change it. They can encourage, for instance, the development of professionalism across the industry. They can encourage, for instance, the relationship with the communities in which they're based. Organizations have got a place to fulfill within society, within the economy, within the political scene, within limits, which they should be doing, which is part of their role, part of their reason for existing. They shouldn't only be responsive and doing the stuff which shows for sustainability, they should be trying to shape for themselves, but also for the broader picture, the environment they're in. So future shaping to me is very much about how the organization, um, what should we say, leads externally and leads its place, creates a place for itself within the future society, economy, political scene. Got it, makes sense, man. Dr. Tony, this was an amazing conversation. So you, Dr. Tony Bendel's uh, contact information will be in the show notes. We're going to put his links to the Anti-Fragile Academy. I encourage all of our listeners to take advantage 
especially if these concepts are new to you and figure out how to keep your organization from being fragile and step into anti-fragility um, post-COVID. Thanks again, Dr. Tony. I appreciate you taking time out your busy schedule to meet with me and my audience today. I'm truly, truly appreciative. And if always anything I can do for you, just please let me know. Thank you. Great to meet you. Good conversation. Enjoy talking to you. Thanks, Tony. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Theologist Podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so others can find us too. If you would like to connect with me, please use the links in the show notes of this episode. Please feel free to connect with me on social media as well. I welcome the opportunity to connect and hear from you. Have a blessed week. Until next time.